0: Welcome to That Wellness Podcast with Natalie Deering. In today's episode, I am joined by a special guest and a family member of mine, Terry Pritchard. I was so excited to interview Terry on his life adventures thus far. He has truly lived a life full of adventure and risk, leading to entertaining stories and lessons learned. He shares with me in the episode various stories from a couple of his journeys, such as hitchhiking across the country, getting attacked by a bear in Alaska, being in the team of people to first encircle Mount Rainier, and even rescuing a baby gray whale calf in Mexico. He's been voted my favorite guide by National Geographic Adventure Magazine and was on the cover of National Geographic Adventure Magazine as well. We discuss the power of nature and the importance of feeling connected to the earth for our well-being and mental health. We discuss his lessons learned and advice he has to anyone who is curious about inviting adventure into their lives. So, without further ado, I invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy listening to the stories of Terry Pritchard. Well, thank you so much, Terry, for coming on here today. I'm really excited to talk with you and to pick your brain about these amazing adventures that you have been on thus far in your life. And yeah, I'm just, I'm really, I'm really, really grateful that we're able to spend this time together. Cause I don't think we've ever spent just one-on-one time together.
1: Not much. The um, only time really is during your grandfather's funeral, but even yeah. that was a little bit of time, yeah, not much.
0: Yeah, not much. So this is a gift and I'm really grateful that we're able to make this time together. And so for the listeners to know, we are related in mm-hmm. that your dad, Mac, is my grandfather's oldest brother.
1: That's correct. Yeah.
0: So my, I call him Papa. My Papa is is your uncle.
1: Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Your uncle Bob. Right? We uncle Bob. Uncle Bob.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which is funny because I have an Uncle Bob, which is my, my cousin, your cousin. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yeah. Your sister's brother. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. So that can get kind of confusing. (laughs) But yes, I have an uncle Bob, you and uncle Bob. And I was trying to look up what you are to me. And I couldn't decide if we're considered to be second cousins or is it called first cousin once removed?
1: I've always thought it was second cousins, but I'm not certain about that.
0: Well, that's what I thought too. But then when I Googled it, Google said, well, technically it's first cousin once removed, but that got really confusing to me. So I think it's fair to just call each other second cousins. Yeah. 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 Works for me. So, yeah, we are, we are related in that, in that sense. And I'd love, like I said, to hear from you about your journey in life so far, because when you When you sent me your biography, when I hear stories from my own mom, who's your cousin, Uh you've just done some really cool stuff and you continue to do really interesting things. And in this podcast, you know, I want to introduce the listeners to people that I find to be fascinating and you have done fascinating things and parts of me are really curious to connect with the parts of you that really are drawn to adventure and being outdoors and taking risks. In my mind, they seem like taking risks. Maybe they don't to you. And so that's what I'd love to chat about today. So to start off, you were born and raised in Washington State, correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah, for the most part, I think I spent a year in Louisa, Kentucky when I was like one years old, but then my mother was missing home. So she, my my parents decided to move move to Washington State, where her family's from.
0: Okay. And Mac was in the Navy, right?
1: That's where he met my mother. Yeah. So he was stationed in the Naval base in Bremerton, Washington in Puget Sound. And my mother was raised in the town of Belfair, which is close to that Naval base. And okay. so I guess they just met on a, I think they met at the Belfair barn dance. I'm not quite sure. Anyway,
0: <laughs> That's so sweet. Yeah. So yeah. they, so they met in Washington, which is where your mom is from. Uh-huh. Your dad, obviously being from Louisa, Kentucky, which uh-huh. is where my mom and her parents are from and you're the oldest of four children.
1: Uh, the oldest of uh, three, well, uh, yeah, I should say four of uh, one passed away when she was two years old back in the late 60s. And my brother, Brian, I don't think you met him. Uh, he passed away in 2018. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, he had colon cancer.
0: Um, yeah.
1: He passed away. That's so right. now there's just my sister and myself. My sister's I, like 11 years younger than myself.
0: Okay. So she's 11 years younger than you.
1: Yeah. And she has a nephew. She has a son who's 20 years old now.
0: Okay. So
1: so my duty is to introduce him to the life of the outdoors and adventure, but it's going to be kind of a hard sale because he likes being home.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Right. And I, yeah, I'm curious to know more about how that goes later on as you continue being with him and, you know, trying to introduce him. Cause did I see correctly on your Instagram, you posted, and we'll get into this towards you know another part of our conversation too. But did you take him on a volcano hike?
1: I did. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, a hike to a peak, a difficult hike. I've taken him on several hikes, and I'm going to do that again in a few days. I might take him probably tomorrow. I'll take him on the on a, you know where we where they live here. We're next to the Cascade Mountains, and there's lots of hiking trails in the national forest here. And so there's lots of places within an hour, two hour drive of here, I can take him and just for, he he likes that. So just get it. Yeah.
0: So that's interesting though, that you noticed that maybe, uh, you know, even at 20 parts of him maybe would prefer to be inside. And is he into like video games or?
1: Uh, Well, videos, I don't know about not too much video games, but you know, like most people his age and the videos.
0: Right. Social Internet, media. social oh, yeah. media, all that, yeah, okay. yeah. But I love that you feel called towards, you know, introducing him to nature and that's to right. adventure. Yeah, that's I think important. that's that's so important. And so yeah. for you, and then so then you grew up though in Washington State, and is it correct that you were raised on like a a big farm?
1: That's correct, and and I'm fortunate uh, in that because the farm had the forest. Um, it had a pond, you know, full of salamanders and frogs and ducks and stuff. And it had a stream and it was 80 acres. So it was quite large.
0: That's huge. So,
1: yeah. A lot of it was pasture for cattle, of course, but you know, but it didn't have a force. It even had that beaver pond. There was beavers there and stuff. I remember. Huh. And so that's where I sort of became a naturalist, my naturalist inclinations. I, uh, in our grade school, we had a little library, and I would be the one always checking out the books on ants and the books on birds and stuff like that. And you know I was you know probably like 12, 13, 14 years old. and, and, and that led into joining the Boy Scouts. and it, that's probably where it really started, you know going out camping and doing a lot. Mm-hmm. My parents were pretty good too about going out a lot. They loved to go to the ocean and they loved to go in the mountain air. Um, they love camping. And mm. so I, I can credit them a lot with uh, introducing me to to the outdoor life.
0: That, that's what I was curious about is where you feel like you got that kind of naturalist, uh, you know, energy within you if you felt that from your parents mm-hmm. or if yeah, it was. Definitely. Yeah. Okay.
1: Uh, at first, later on, I had a mentor, but that, that comes later after i was an adult but 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 when i was a child i definitely uh, was influenced by my my parents predilection to go camping and and they were and they would go gather you know um what i mean by that is is like they would go to the ocean dig clams and and we'd eat the clams and then certain times of the year uh, in the winter months these uh, small schools of fish we call them smelt We'd run up the rivers in Southwest Washington. and We'd go at nets and we'd dip them, and then they would smoke that, and then we'd have those mm-hmm. little fish to eat, also and stuff, you know. And then we'd go gather berries and fruits and huckleberries and stuff like that. So my, they were, uh, they weren't hunter gatherers by no means, but but that sort of you know they, they But they I mean, that's a lot. Used yeah. local resources for sure.
0: That's beautiful. And do you feel like going through those experiences of gathering with your parents, did you feel like you were able to take in that information about like, oh, this is this type of berry. This is this type of plant. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, definitely. But different types of clams and and fish and birds and stuff like that. And I became a very passionate birder. I, I'm not quite sure why. I, I just like birds. So I would draw birds. Uh, you know, I had like a coloring pencils and a in a sketch pad and I, I would just see birds and I would draw them and stuff like that. Mm. And I was doing that quite early, way before anybody my age was normally be doing stuff like that.
0: Yeah. So that's beautiful. I mean, that tells me that, yes, you were being encouraged by your parents to be outdoors, which is really beautiful. And they were inviting you, to go along with them, to be out in nature, to look for clams, to look at the birds, to notice what types of plants and and all of that foraging that can be used, yeah, to eat and yeah. to utilize, but also to admire the yeah. beauty and just the rawness of nature.
1: Yeah, and we would go salmon fishing, you know, and what we catch, we eat, of course, stuff like that. Yeah, I think a lot of it is because of where I grew up um in the Pacific Northwest. I mean literally the Pacific Ocean was one hour to the west, the Cascade Mountains and the volcanoes were one hour to the east. Puget mm. Sound was like a, a half hour to the north, uh, you know, the Columbia River like an hour, half hour whatever to the south. So it's just everything was right there.
0: And so that helps, right? I mean because oh, if you're yeah, yeah if you're Definitely. living in a location that amazing with yeah. all of those different types of terrains and environments available i mean yeah it makes it easier
1: even where i grew up you know when i before i was too old to travel on my own you know when i was a child we had that big farm with the pond i mentioned and the stream and the forest and the beaver pond and and you know i just go out there and just observe things and play
0: Yeah. yeah and do you feel like your sense of adventure like did you always feel kind of safe to go out and about on your own or to maybe grab someone with you and to be like, let's just go explore.
1: Most of my adventures were alone. Although, you know, later on, I did do a lot of things with friends. So, so both, but at first on my own, for sure. Uh,
0: And were there any parts of you that you remember that were maybe scared or worried, or do you just remember the sense of like, no, this feels natural?
1: Oh, no, no. I was definitely scared at the time, particularly when I took up mountain climbing at first. I mean, I was in a couple of situations where I remember I shouldn't be here and I was scared. Oh. You know, I got myself in a couple of situations where I couldn't back down, literally, you know, oh. so you keep going forward. And uh, yeah, and that was a, that was definitely mountain climbing. The other adventures I've done, not so much, but mountain climbing uh especially when you're talking about vertical mountain climbing where you're kind of like you're 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 holding your feet are on little edges your hands are holding the little ledges, you're going up and you know it's yeah there was a couple times where i was definitely scared and i'm amazed i made it well, oh so man i learned from those lessons and uh didn't put myself in those situations again after that i, I mean i still mountain climb but it's more of a calculated risk I,
0: Okay. So looking back at those experiences where parts of you were really scared and, and, but we're like, well, I can't go back down. I literally have to just keep going up. Yeah.
1: yeah, I've, I've been in several situations, even sea kayaking. One time years ago in Costa Rica, I was crossing the Gulf in and the Coya, and the water conditions. It was a saltwater bay. It was completely calm, flat, like a mirror. And, you know, in these kayaks, you have cockpits and and you usually wear a spray skirt. And the spray skirt's object is to keep the water from getting inside your cockpit and swamping you. Well, it was so calm that I put the spray skirt in the back hatch so it wasn't accessible when I was paddling. And so when I was kayaking, all of a sudden the wind picked up. And before I knew it, I had like a two or three foot chop and the waves were coming to my cockpit. And, I, and again, I was, uh, you couldn't go back. You had to just keep going and I made oh. it. That was another lesson I've learned ever since I never, ever put your spray skirt in some place you can't get to it when you need it in a hurry. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That that makes a lot of sense. That
1: was a necessary moment too.
0: (laughs) Right. And so it sounds like two lessons already you're sharing is one, if you're rock climbing, make sure to be calculated and knowing what are you climbing? I'm assuming like what equipment do you have available? Yeah. and. Cause that's obviously could be, well, all of these things could be deadly. Oh yeah. And yeah. And especially rock climbing. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And then with kayaking, like you're saying with the spray skirt, just always make sure that you have it readily at hand. It doesn't have to be on all the time, but make sure you can easily reach it because it sounds like in that moment, it was unexpected in terms of the shift in weather.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that goes without saying. That's the thing with outdoors is you, you, you can't predict that. You know, weather can right. change. Things can happen instantly. You got to be prepared for it. And the best preparation is practice and experience. Take, if you're going to go mountain climbing, take mountain climbing courses. You're going to go kayaking, take sea kayaking courses, literally. I mean, just learn all these things instead of just going out on your own. Unfortunately, I did it backwards. Mm. <laughs> i sort of started i certainly went and did all these things all on my own but uh well well well, some of them with friends i I was never alone when i was mountain climbing obviously and i was never alone when i was kayaking but that's that's important too. never go alone
0: never go alone if you can and yeah and if you can you know take some sort of classes and courses and or have a guide (laughs) in the beginning to help but it sounds like for you maybe you just felt that again that kind of like push and that draw towards just doing it. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, of course, you learned lessons along the way.
1: I was lucky to learn the lessons when I was young. Yeah. So I can survive to be an older person. Right.
0: Exactly. (laughs) And share your wisdom with other people.
2: Yeah,
0: (laughs) And so, you know, and we're going to get into, and I'm excited to get into all this list of things that you've done. And believe me, the, for the listeners to know, this is not an all-encompassing list of all the things you've done in the course of your life thus far. But I'm curious to know, what would you say nature and the sense of adventure, all these things you've been on, what do you feel like this has meant to you so far in your life? What do you feel like nature and being outdoors and putting yourself out there in these situations what does it mean to you?
1: Well, the positives are it's it's a way to connect with the environment. I think one of the problems nowadays a lot of people have is they're so disconnected from nature, especially with social media and stuff. People, uh, they just feel very disconnected. And so for, for me, uh, I think it's very important for my mental health, for one thing. And and there's studies that have proven that, especially in, in Japan. Um I don't remember the Japanese name for it, but there's a, um,
0: is it forest a bathing?
1: Forest bathing. Yeah. And so I've studied forest bathing and I read about it. I bought a book on it, read all about it. And, and basically it involves just reconnecting with nature and going out in the woods and sitting someplace where there's no external noise other than the trees and the wind, you know, and the smells and just closing your eyes and just sitting for like 20 minutes, mm-hmm. just taking it all in and, and using your senses, you know? To take yeah. It and, and so to me that, that that's always been important to be among the trees and the mountains and the lakes and stuff. And I think it just keeps, makes me feel alive. But the problem I have is when I'm indoors for too long, I can almost get like a cabin fever. Now, I'm not saying I can't stay a day indoors. I can stay weeks and months indoors, but eventually I get to the point where, you know, I feel like I should go do something uh, challenging in my life.
0: Yeah. I love that. What you just said, you know, that nature helps you feel alive. I feel like that is something that a lot of people in our society now is missing definitely for sure just with how often we're inside buildings now and not outside breathing fresh air looking up at the sky feeling the wind and the sun or the rain feeling the ground on our feet yeah and listening like you said to the sounds around us of nature
1: I went hiking the other day with my nephew and sister at Mount Rainier National Park and he had the earplugs in the whole time he was hiking. So he wasn't listening to anything, but whatever he was listening to on the, on this phone, you know, right. And so connecting with nature, I think is very important for people's mental health.
0: Oh yeah. And they've done Early. studies too, where they've uh-huh. looked at, you know, they scan a group of people's brains who matched criteria for, I think it was major depressive disorder. Mm-hmm. And then they had them go take a walk, a two hour experience in the woods. And then they scan their brains again afterwards. And what they noticed was, you know, the area of the brain, I want to say, maybe it was like an increase in the prefrontal cortex and a decrease maybe in like the limbic system, which is like our fear response and all of that. And that kind of showed that even without medication per se, just being out in nature Uh can have that calming effect and that feeling of, connection and curiosity and just that innate i really i mean obviously we're made of this earth right we are are, we're animals yeah
1: like we're We're made of this earth (laughs) we forget that at times
0: exactly and so it's like we've been taken away from our natural habitat and put into these boxes which feel safe quote Uh unquote you know they're artificial but they're artificial exactly Uh Oh, I I completely agree. And there's been a lot so much research now more about the impact of nature and mental health. And, you know, even everything down to ADHD, to, uh, like I said, depression, anxiety, that when we are outside, whether we can see it, hear it, smell it, you know, taste it even and feel it, it just helps ground us. It does, yeah. So I love what you said, that nature helps you feel alive. Yeah. So do you care to, let's get into some of your amazing things that you've done and hear some of these stories. Does that sound good? Yeah, let's go ahead. Okay, so let's start with you, uh, the early 80s, you hitchhiked from, where did you start?
1: um missoula montana i had um graduated from the university of montana with a degree in geology and i just wanted something to do for the summer and i didn't have any money uh, mm-hmm. very very little money and so uh, and back then uh, hitchhiking was still acceptable it was it, actually that was i guess i would call that sort of the end people still hitchhike but that was sort of the the end of the golden age of hitchhiking you know the 60s and 70s were the golden age and that by the early 80s it was sort of like the, like uh, uh declining and the yeah. number of people who are doing it and stuff like that so for me it was just a way to see the country i particularly wanted to see canada i had not been up in canada mm. at that point and so so what I did, I, I from Missoula, Montana, I hitched the rides up to Calgary, Montana, and I followed the Canadian Trans-Canada Highway all the way across to uh, Nova Scotia. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And back. And when I came back, I came back through the United States to New England. And then eventually, uh, I made my way to Louisa, where was a good thing I did that because I saw my grandparents for the last time. Well, mm. at least my grandmother was still alive. And that's the last time I saw her okay alive. and uh and your father actually um uh, i spent a couple of days in louisa and then your father was the one who drove me out to the end of the road and dropped me off so i could continue hitchhiking west
0: <laughs> did he did he say anything to you at the, at the moment of like terry i don't know what you're doing <laughs> probably
1: <laughs> or... yeah he was laughing about that at your at your grandfather's funeral your father and i were talking about that and he was laughing that's well, so, was, funny. It was so funny. He was dropping me off and he said, I was, he was worried about me. He said, drop me off. Well, <laughs> I guess he knows what he's doing.
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like nowadays, you know, I don't know. It's, it's sad. I feel like this, things have changed. It doesn't feel as safe, you know, to do stuff like that anymore. But, uh, you know, looking back on that experience, is there anything that stood out for you during that experience of starting in Montana? and then circling back around anything stand out for you from that experience either lessons learned
1: well definitely the kindness of people mm-hmm. it was unbelievable uh people would give me a ride and then next thing i know they're inviting me to spend the night with them give me dinner or you know excellent conversations i'm learning about their life they're learning about my life oh it was a blast i loved it uh, that that whole trip um you know and and just the kindness of people and then I was able, you know, it, it takes a lot of patience to hitchhike. You know, I remember some places I stood a few hours waiting. In other places, I'd be waiting five or 10 minutes for a mm. ride. But mainly it was just the, the, the kindness of people was the main thing. I and, and, and beautiful. Learned, and seeing people from other cultures, like I didn't know anything about Canadians. And by the time I ended that trip, I knew quite a lot about Canadian culture. and Yeah. And how you view life differently than Americans do, little differences and stuff like mm. that. So it was a very interesting trip for me, very eye opening, and that really, I think that trip across country, really spurred on my my sense of adventure. It, it, it didn't decrease it; it actually I, I augmented it.
0: <laughs> so, yeah.
1: So after that, that's when I really started adventuring. Was after, okay, because because it's risky, you know. Yeah. And, and what i enjoyed about it what i particularly enjoyed about that hitchhiking trip was you never knew what was coming next someone would drop you off in the road and then you you don't know who's going to stop pulling you over right you don't know how long you're going to be there you don't know where you're going to end up nothing and so it's set that that whole unknown and risk part of it i found very exciting
0: yeah absolutely people
1: like, would be terrified of that but i found it exciting
0: yeah, I mean, parts of me right now, as you're describing that, are going like, no. <laughs> well,
1: as a woman, I would never recommend right. it, for sure. But, that's, but, but, that's but I was difference. a big male. I was tall and I was big. So I think that helped me a lot.
0: Absolutely. In
1: risky situations, yeah.
0: Yes, that makes sense. And, you know, it's interesting because, yeah, as you're describing, I love that the first thing that you say when I ask you lessons learned, you're like, the kindness of people. And in the back of my mind, a part of me... I guess was back there being like, Oh, he's going to say something that was scary or, you know, something bad, but it was no, you're like, it was the kindness of the people that were willing to pick you up. Like you said, offer you meals, shelter, and learning about other people's cultures, backgrounds, and how all of that, like you said, it's just amplifying, it amplified your interest and curiosity for more adventure.
1: Now, I don't know if I was lucky, but I didn't have any scary moments that entire one month of hitchhiking across the country. Wow. Just the kindness of people. I mean, I, I had indigenous peoples pick me up in Montana. I remember a, um, a member of the Blackfish uh, tribe in northern Montana. Uh, I got picked up and put in the back of a pickup with a, another guy. And and uh, he basically gave me a, he, he basically, we were talking and then, and then, he was telling me about his culture and their lands and stuff. And I had no idea of any of this stuff. And then next thing I knew, he was holding my hand and chanting and he was blessing me, he said, and stuff like that. You oh. know, so these experiences like that were just incredible. you wouldn't get otherwise. It'd be impossible to get that otherwise. I don't know how.
0: Absolutely. That's so beautiful. So you said yeah. you did that for a month.
1: It took me about a month to go, to go east all the way to Nova Scotia and then back to Montana. Yeah. And I had a tent with me and sleeping bags. So a lot of times I would camp and stuff like that.
0: Okay. But, so when but, you were sleeping, you were camping.
1: Yeah. Now I did have one funny moment. It, it, I thought it was scary at first, but it ended up being very funny. And I'll tell you this moment on the way back, uh, on the way to Louisa through New England, I got dropped off in uh, and then in uh in in the the town in pennsylvania i don't remember the town but but i got dropped off in what we'd call the industrial part of town with uh sales buildings and stuff like that whatever stores and so i was dropped off and it was night it was dark and i was walking and i noticed there was a furniture store next to me so i thought well they're probably going to have a some big boxes in the back you know for sofa-sized cardboard boxes I can hide into for the night in camp, you know, on the Uh-huh. And so I did that, walked behind the store, and sure enough, there was a huge cardboard box in the, next to a dumpster. You know, they had like more of a shed dumpster, but lots of big cardboard boxes. And I, and I crawled into it, but it was, you know, being summer in Pennsylvania, as you know, it's like Louisa, where it's very humid in the summer. Oh, yeah. Well, I was just sweating, so I took all my clothes off, and, <laughs> and I went to sleep in this box, until <laughs> 2 a.m. in the morning, I woke up to the sound of hydraulics and crunching boxes.
0: Oh, what my happened
1: gosh. And was the garbage truck came by to, collect, to crush the boxes. <laughs> and I quickly jumped out because there was all these bright lights and <laughs> sounds, you know. And I go, oh, my God. I decided to get out of here. So I didn't have time to put clothes on anything. I just jumped out of the box naked. And these two men were standing there next to the dumpster, you know, throwing boxes into the crusher and their truck. And they just basically just just jumped back and they go, whoa. (laughs) And And then I quickly said, okay. Uh, give me a, a moment, fellows. I'll collect my camping gear and I'll be out of here. I'll put some clothes on and be out of here. And <laughs> their shock turned to laughter, and all of a sudden they just started laughing. And they went, "Hey, son, don't worry. We'll leave that box for you. You can stay here." Oh. <laughs> and so they they so they finished what they're doing. They were laughing the whole way. They were driving away.
0: That's and so. so that, oh my god. That gosh. was
1: the best moment from that trip. I think I I, I tell that story all the time. That's I love it.
0: Yeah, and and again, right? I mean, lucky that you heard all those sounds and you woke up before, yeah. you know, yeah. the uh, you know, uh, machines picking you up and putting right, you right. in the back, right? And so, yeah. oh my gosh! And it and you're lucky too that those guys found it funny and not yeah. threatening, right? And they were that's just right. able to be kind and to leave you the box, yeah, <laughs> so, right. you know. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I love it. That's great. And so then you made it back. And so was that, was that before 1982
1: when? No, that, that, that was basically about 1982. That was a summer in 1982.
0: Okay. So then we go into August of 1982 where you were in Alaska and that was that with the bear attack?
1: Oh, okay. 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 Um, yeah, no, I take that back. I'm, I'm thinking maybe the hitchhiking trip summer before because definitely August of 82, I was in Alaska. Yeah. Okay. So I, no, I, I hitchhiked the summer before that. So it must've been the summer of 81. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. So, so anyway, the, um, the, the bear attack was definitely August of 82.
0: Okay. Uh, Do you care to talk about that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, I, 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 I had just graduated with a degree in geology and, um, the, um, that the mining companies, come by the geology departments of the universities in the United States. And for the sole reason of picking up um, what I call cheap labor. Mm. So they'll hire inexperienced students you know, um, with geology degrees and they'll send them to their, their prospective jobs and stuff, but they won't pay as much you know, as they right. like, pay an experienced person. So it's a great way for people with geology degrees to get their first job. It's a great way for mining companies to get some get some grunt labor, and so so I was hired by a company that had a that was doing mining mineral exploration up in central Alaska, north of Fairbanks, and so uh, they uh, they would send us out daily. So so we were we were based out of this bush camp that we a, a a bush camp is where you um, I think as far as the world went north of Fairbanks at the time. And they, uh, and they had a tent camp set up for us. So it wasn't a town. It was just basically a clearing with a tent camp and they had a, a kitchen tent, you know, and and the, and the tents for the people to sleep in and, and so forth. And we were sent out every day by a helicopter to, to go to various streams and places in the mountains and pan for gold. Oh, and so basically um, we were given a shovel and a day pack with the lunch in it and then a gold pan and a map. And on the map was drawn where we we're supposed to go. And then the helicopter would drop us off at certain places. Well, the, it started out with two of us going at a time um, in the beginning of, of that summer. But by August, uh, the supervisor realized he was behind schedule. So he made the decision to send us out alone. Which uh, at the time, I was too naive uh, to, know, to know what danger I was in.
0: Because how old but, were you at this point?
1: Uh, I was probably about 24. Okay. But anyway, 23 or 24. Um, and uh, no, I would have been 24. Yeah. Anyway, so um, uh, we were uh, uh, sent out and uh, dropped off at a mountaintop by helicopter. And then our job was to so hike down from the top of the clearing of the mountain to the streams. And then we were on our map, we were drawing X's where we we're supposed to stop and take a shovel and dig in the little stream and then uh, pan it with the gold mm-hmm. pan. And they taught us how to do all that. And then whatever minerals we have or sediment at the end, we put into a little bag and then mark a cold on that whatever uh, location on it. And then that would go eventually end up going back to some place where they would do an analysis on it to see the gold content and stuff like that okay anyway um so um when i was hiking down the stream i heard um i heard something rustle in the bushes and so uh what i was relaying to earlier which i got sidetracked right now um, was that i was so naive that i didn't realize that the danger i was in because you see we didn't have a gun we didn't have bear spray. We didn't have a radio.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: At the time, I didn't think anything of it, but now I think, my God, that was incredibly risky what they were doing to us. And so, um, anyway, so we were, so I was walking down. I heard some rustling in the bushes. So I just yelled out, which was my first mistake because you're not supposed to yell.
2: <laughs>
1: and the next thing I knew, I heard the crashing and growling coming quickly towards me. And so I was standing next to a little tree because this was permafrost country. And in permafrost country, what permafrost is, is there's ice in the soil. So trees can't get their roots down very deep. So on top of the ice, it's all moss. and, And so the trees can't get big there. They're all little trees because the permafrost prevents them from getting big. And so I climbed this little tree It's probably about 20 feet tall. I've managed to get about six feet up, but quickly, I mean, when I talk about climbing, I, I must've been up within a second. Yeah. And I can only get about six feet high. I would say the bottom of my feet were probably about six feet off the ground, which isn't nothing, nothing hardly at all. And a big black bear came out of the bushes and charged the tree, oh. got up on the hind legs and started clawing my rubber boots because it's, it's, um, the permafrost and all the moss, um, one wears rubber boots. And so he was trying to claw my rubber boots and pull me out of a tree. And and so I quickly thought I need to get higher. So as I shifted my weight to climb higher, a little branch I was standing on, a little dead branch broke and I fell out of the tree. Oh no. I fell out of the tree in the opposite side of the tree, the bear and that day pack I had on, uh, I was wearing had came off and was in front of my face. And so I couldn't see anything, but that was fortunate because what I was able to do, I was able to throw that pack off very mm. quickly. I was mostly off my body anyway, over my shoulders and in front of my face. And so I threw it and hit the bear with it. That caused the bear to back up a few steps. And that allowed me a, a split second to bend over, grab that long-handled shovel I dropped at the base of the tree. And then I picked up that shovel and held it high above me because remember I'm tall and you have like a six feet long shovel. It's a pretty impressive thing. And I yeah. just started yelling and swinging that shovel at the bear and the bear backed up a little bit. But the bear didn't run away. It just backed up a little bit. <laughs> it kept looking at me and it kept walking sideways towards me, always looking oh, at. Oh gosh. Few steps forward and I just and this lasted maybe a couple minutes. You know, like the longest couple minutes of my right. life. Right. Yeah. And so I eventually, I don't know why I did this. I eventually started swinging the shovel against that tree I was standing next to. And it made a clanging sound.
0: Uh uh-huh.
1: And the bear was afraid of the metal sound. So the bear turned around and went back in the bushes. Mm. And at that point, I picked up my pack. And I walked back up the hill backwards, looking <laughs> at the spot where that bear went into, prepared for another charge, right? Yeah. And the bear never came. Years later, I would find out that bears are afraid of metal sounds. Yep. It's not a natural sound. So you make a sound of metal. Like they always say you're in camp, the bear comes by, take a aluminum cook pot or whatever, Mm -hmm. put some gravel in it and just jiggle around and bring them together. And that frightens them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. And (laughs) I mean, just so interesting that you just, that just naturally happened that you were able to take that shovel and bang it up against the tree. Cause I also wonder if in that moment, you know, someone would have maybe tried to just swing it at the bear. You know as a weapon almost yeah. and kind of swinging it and what that may have done if it just would have irritated the bear more or, but I it's just know. who knows right
1: head most of the times and and kind of swung around but not really so much yeah I, I didn't run towards the bear and try to hit it i'll put it that way right
0: right but the fact that yeah you just swung it up against that tree and it made yeah. that metal sound and luckily yeah the bear yeah. didn't like that sound
1: yeah, I like that but it took me like over a minute to. to figure that out but anyway what was interesting was my body my body was shaking and I found out later that's a natural adrenaline response Oh yeah, yeah when you're threatened with death you're you go into adrenaline and you're sharp every every second seems like it'll last a minute mm. and and you're just prepared for anything my whole body was shaking for a long time after that yeah for like an hour a half hour at least or something oh like that. yeah
0: well, yeah. and, and also, I mean, I've read, um, you know, there's a book out there called, I think it's called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Uh-huh. And it's about this understanding about our biology. And like what you're saying about adrenaline release and all of that, but talking about the, our natural and animals natural response to danger, like you're saying, we uh-huh. have this adrenaline reaction, this release, which helps us go into fight or flight, so that we can have more of this strength and more clarity and uh-huh. then once there is a slowdown, meaning there is a sense of safety now, like you were saying the bear ran off.. Uh-huh. But there was still a part of you that was like, well, just in case I'm going to be very hyper vigilant. I'm gonna walk backwards. But we have that as we go into like the,, um, you know, moving from the the sympathetic to parasympathetic, we can have that like that shaking and Mm -hmm. that release of energy. They talk about how, you know, when you watch like an antelope that was chased by a, by a lion Uh and the lion catches the antelope, but doesn't kill it necessarily, but it thinks that it does because the antelope goes into the freeze response.
2: Oh, that's right. And so
0: then the lion walks away thinking I'll come Uh back to it. But then the antelope pops up again and then you see it shake and shiver its whole body, Uh and then it runs. And so what I've read is like with humans, where we can get stuck patterns of trauma and energy within us is because Mm -hmm. we don't have that release of the fight or flight response Mm -hmm. uh, after the fact, the way that animals just naturally do. Mm -hmm. And so that can be for various reasons. But like for you, like the shivering was like a healthy way of your body regulating itself and that explosion of energy that you had of of adrenaline to release that and to get you back to a state eventually of safety and calm. But if like, let's say you were around someone else during that moment and they were like, stop shaking, you're fine. Then that's where as humans, we can get like these stuck patterns, uh, these stuck energies within us because we haven't gone through the natural release. Yeah. So I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that's really important for us as humans to understand that when you go through something scary like that and intense, it's normal for your body to shake. That's right. And to have that, that release
1: when we were the prey and, and lions and tigers were the predators. Exactly. <laughs> the and, and bears,
0: <laughs> lions and tigers and bears, <laughs> mm-hmm. literally. Yeah. Oh man. Well, thank you for sharing that. And yeah, look, so I guess looking at that experience now uh, w- any lessons learned?
1: <laughs> oh, um, yeah, yeah. Don't go in the woods without bear spray. <laughs> or, or alone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't go in the backwoods of Alaska without bear spray and and at least one or two people. Actually, when I was working for Limbath Expeditions, their policy was no less than five. Oh wow! And, that, and that's based on what the state of Alaska recommends. Wildlife biologists in the state of Alaska. It's say when you're in, I think we are talking more about brown bear country, grizzly bears, but they say your chances of being attacked by bear are far, far less if you're in a group of five, mm. group of less than five, your chances increase. And so when people went hiking with us in Alaska this past summer, if someone said, well, I want to go back to the boat now, I don't want to keep going. We couldn't have let them. We said, you're going with us or we all go back.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Anyway, interesting, huh?
0: Yeah, yeah. Good well, to know.
1: But the, Yeah, so that's my advice. Don't go alone. And certainly we do carry bear spray <laughs> if, you're in, if you're in known bear country. You know.
0: Right. Absolutely. So then fast forward a bit to May of 1986, you were a team member on the first Nordic ski high altitude encirclement of Mount Rainier.
1: That's correct, yeah. And that
0: lasted, what, seven days?
1: Yeah, that was week seven days exactly a week
0: yeah. i googled it and the first thing that pops up is your name with oh. the other people kirkland rush and walters
1: walters that's right yeah there's four yeah
0: yeah so it was it's you four if you google this you all pop up and yeah. you were in the history books in regards to that first that first encirclement of mount rainier
1: yeah, yeah that was exciting um Kirkland, Kirk Kirkland was my uh, mentor. Um, after I did that hitchhiking trip I told you about, I, um, I uh, moved to uh, Tacoma, Washington, and I, and I became friends, I forget, through another friend, oh, through a girl I was dating at the time from University of Montana. Uh, she was a friend with uh, some people from the geology department of um, the U.S. Geological Survey in Tacoma. And 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 so through them I met a variety of outdoor enthusiasts, friends, and that's what really got me going because those guys were always doing adventures. Uh, mm. With uh, I mean numerous adventures, which I, I some of them which I listed the Yukon and stuff like that. Uh, but but anyway, on this on this mountaineering trip, we were lucky in that we had beautiful weather for seven days. I think that helped a lot, but we had uh, it was very challenging. It wasn't easy at all. It's very. Because you guys
0: were on skis, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. For most of part, most of part. There's times we couldn't be on skis, but when we could be on skis, we were, uh, because it made it a lot easier. You can travel faster. And okay. Stuff when you're on skis, but there's certain parts it was just too risky to be on skis. And, mm. and and the whole trip went pretty well, but we did have one incident, and that's when uh, uh, we were in two rope teams. And the team ahead of me, Kirkland and Walters, uh, that the leader was Kirkland, and he broke through a crevasse. Oh and my so, gosh! So uh, we had to rescue him and pull him out. Uh, so, so uh, which we did, and so that was the first thing that happened. That was risky, but he wasn't hurt. But you know, but Good. because we were roped up, and the rope kept him from falling to the bottom and stuff like that. But we mm-hmm. had to get him out and stuff, and you know, and that was a little scary. Yeah. And that happened. And then the second thing that happened was um, after we had gone around and we were on the mountain and we we're on our way back uh, down the mountain, which is actually, you know, the riskiest part of mountain climbing isn't going up. It's always going down. Mm. The chance of falling are much higher going down because you're tired for one thing. And then it's just when you're climbing up, you're in more control. You, the slopes facing you, you can, but when you're going down, when you fall, you fall farther. Yeah. And so um so the guy I was roped up with uh he fell. And I was leading going down and he slipped and fell and um he was probably the least experienced of all of us. And he slid by me he was roped to me and I and he wasn't doing what we call a self arrest. Now, self-arrest is when you're doing mountain climbing, you have crampons on your feet, you know, spikes on your shoes, mm-hmm. and you have an ice axe. And the idea is when you fall, you roll over on towards your belly and you dig your ice axe in and you try to get your crampons in to keep you from sliding on the ice. Yeah. He wasn't doing any of that. <laughs> and so he goes flying by me high velocity. And I thought, oh my God, Oof. he's going to pull me to my death too. So I quickly, uh, Fell forward and buried my axe deep, my ice axe deep into the into mm. the snow. It, it wasn't pure hard ice; it was you know soft enough where I can bury an ice axe up to it. And then I planted my uh, crampons in the snow as well. I'm laying my belly and I just prepared for that 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 moment when that rope came taut, and it did. And I stopped him. Oof! But he had not self-arrested at all, and I wasn't oh. too happy about that. <laughs> well. You could have pulled me to my you know. Yeah. yeah.
0: And that was, oh my gosh, right? Just another moment in your life where you thought so quickly, you know, you see see him (laughs) like just come right past you and you just very instinctively flipped around, shoved your ice, you know, pick into that mountain and shoved your feet in there. And you probably would you say you probably saved both of your all's lives?
1: Oh, definitely, definitely, yeah. Mountain climbing, Natalie, is is it involves long hours of tedious boredom, spiked by moments of terror. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best description of mountain climbing. Oh man, (laughs) tedious. just climbing up, you know, you're exhausted, you're hiking, put one foot in front of the others, you know, there's no risk whatsoever you're just going up. And then all of a sudden there's a moment of terror happens, like a friend oh. breaks a ass or a guy slides by and he's not self-arresting. You know, and this is just, that stuff happens within a second. A second. Yeah. Everything else takes hours or days.
0: Oh my goodness. <laughs> so yes, that is intense. And so uh, from that experience, not just that, that one in general, but from that experience of, uh, you know, doing that encirclement, anything that, you know, you took away from that experience?
1: Oh, no, basically be prepared, mm. yeah, be prepared, train, be prepared. Like the fellow I was roped with, he wasn't prepared. You know, okay. He didn't train or do anything really. So uh, I would say the best thing to do is, is just be prepared and know your abilities uh, and also know when it's time to quit. Mm. A lot of people don't do that and that's how they get in trouble when you hear people dying in places like mount everest and stuff like that a lot of the time because they're they're paid so much money and it's been such an effort to get there they'll force themselves to to go to yeah. the summit or whatever and then they'll they'll perish in the way down because various reasons are exhausted whatever. right yeah
0: well but, great advice yeah, yeah. be prepared no one to quit that's right yeah and so then Moving into July of 1987, this is where you engage in the Yukon River kayak expedition from Carcross, British Columbia to Circle, Alaska, uh-huh. right? Okay. Yeah. And did you do that with Kirkland?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Here again was another another thing he'd organized for us. Um, and so, um, yeah, and this is one of many things, but this was one of the major ones. Uh, the things like, like Kirkland and I and our, our and, and Walters and I and Rush, we would do things practically every weekend. It could be like a hundred mile bike ride, it could be to Seattle, Portland, 200 miles in one day bike ride, would, <laughs> and mountain climbing, all that kind of stuff. But, but you know, so we were doing this kind of stuff all the time. But this was one of the, the big trips, you know, we're okay. gone for a month like that. Yeah, and that it took was, a month. Oh, yeah, yeah, very exciting, very exciting. Again, many, many long, tedious. Boring hours of paddling from one point A to point B, all scenic, but sometimes against the wind, sometimes Mm. exhausted, you know, and other times it's just exhilarating. Yeah. Um, On this trip, we didn't have anything I would call risky. Everything went very well. There was there was no moment I can tell you where I was terrified or anything like that. Uh, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, And and we got to meet a lot of people who were living along the river who were homesteading. Okay. And visit with them and talk about their lives and stuff like that. And then yeah. the wildlife was incredible. Just lots of wildlife and living on the rivers. But I remember from that trip was the mosquitoes. <laughs> so bad. You had to wear a head net. And and I, I'll never forget this. I tell people this a lot. I remember sleeping in my tents at night. And you swear it was raining. Because you hear the pelting on the rainfly. You know, just like rain. Well, it wasn't rain. It was all the mosquitoes trying to get to you.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, and were yeah. they like the ginormous mosquitoes?
1: They were the ginormous <laughs> mosquitoes. Alaska mosquitoes are ginormous. You know? They're just huge. And so and there's millions of them. And so and so even eating was a major chore because you had to lift up the net to get the spoon to your mouth, right? Oh my gosh. Out. Oh yeah. It was terrible. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that's one thing I definitely remember about the trip I did not like, but it's just what it is, you know. But the rest of it was gorgeous, beautiful trip. Mm very interesting characters living along the river i don't think they're there anymore i think at the time some of them were telling us that the forest service were going to start asking them to leave
0: and those so. were just people that that's where they lived and homesteaders, yeah. homesteaders okay the last of the homesteaders yeah okay exactly yeah 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 that's amazing i can only imagine yeah the scenery that you that you were able to witness and like you said the animals and meeting these homesteaders and just people along the way yeah. and to have a month you know to be yeah. able to do that and to take that in that's amazing
1: well i actually extended that trip i uh other i i flew up with two things i flew up to to fairbanks with a um with a kayak and a bicycle and so when we finished the trip my friend I Flew with my kayak and, and, and their gear back to Seattle, and I stayed and I assembled my bicycle and I rolled my bike to Seattle. <laughs> that took weeks. I was gonna say I was like, now, how long
0: did that take?
1: Oh, that took the rest of the summer. I'm sure, I'm sure that took another. Oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't get to Vancouver, Seattle, or Vancouver, Canada, until probably like late September. Oh no, it's October. Yeah, by the time I got there, oh my gosh, that that was a that was one of the best summers of my life. That was a wonderful summer to take an entire summer off and just—that's so cool. And this, you know,
0: that's amazing.
1: You know, and and when I say travel by bike, that's what the panniers, the tent, cook kit, everything. You know, I didn't stay in hotels. I didn't go to restaurants. I just went to grocery stores, bought the food I needed, and then camped.
0: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I love it. And so then. After that, you said, like, in 1989 is when you started to really become, like, a guide, correct, in terms of, like, with kayaking and rafting. Uh, And you've been a guide in, what, like, Mexico, Belize, Idaho, Galapagos Islands, Alaska, Patagonia, Argentina, Chile, Italy. Mm -hmm. I mean, these really amazing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, kind of all over. Yeah. Yeah,
0: all over the place.
1: Yeah, I was fortunate to get into the sea kayaking industry early, in the, in the early 80s. They, again, this is through my friends in Tacoma, like Kirkland, who I consider to be my, my my mentor. He was older than me, but he was a great mentor and, and introduced me to sea kayaking.
2: Mm. And he
1: had an extra kayak, and so he'd always invite me along with them, and we'd go kayaking. Either it'd be a day trip or be even multi-day trips, you know, stuff like that, but... And, and so I was a kayaker and, um, uh, how I got into guiding was because, um, I was working for an engineering firm in Seattle in the late eighties. And one of the engineers was talking to me and he found out I like sea kayaking. And so he told me, Oh, you should, uh, see my friend Clark. Uh, he just started a sea kayak tour company and he's looking for people to help him guide. And, now, and I said, Oh, really? So so we were connected together. And um, this fellow Clark invited me to come on one of his kayak tours, five days to assist him that summer. So I did that in the San Juan Islands. And after the five days, I told him, Clark, count me in. This is a mm-hmm. career I want. I just knew it. I just knew it. I just said, I can't believe I'm actually getting paid to do this. I'd do this for free.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. Just feeling such a calling.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just felt like it was just something I really liked doing. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's so neat. And then you started your own sea kayaking company called Sea Kayak Adventures in 1993.
1: Yeah, that's right. Because one of the problems I was looking at, Natalie, was uh, my age. I was already in my mid-30s and i knew that if i wanted to make a career out of sea kayak guide, uh, guiding uh, that i needed to take it another step up and start a company so so i can actually make a living at it because i knew i'm not going to be on the water every week there's going to get time in my life right you know i want to be you know right. booking tours and selling tours and hiring other people to lead the tours i can't lead them all because the company was growing stuff yeah so, so I decided um, to uh, make the move to start a company and I started small. They always say slow growth is so strong growth, right? Mm-hmm. So I just started out with uh, renting kayaks in, in a trailer and start, did a few trips like that and did well. And then the next year that, that doubled and the next year I bought my own kayaks and trailer and then it just took off from there. And part of it was because this is the time that the internet and Google was really starting up, and so people before then, when you wanted to go travel, you would go to a travel agent. Right, the travel agent would book your tours for you. Well, by the late '80s, early '90s, the travel agents weren't being used as much because people were Googling, mm-hmm. uh, sea kayaking and Baja, and so I was lucky in that I had uh, that I had the foresight to to realize that people are going to be booking on the internet. And so before then I was putting little ads in outside magazine and Audubon magazine. And I was doing, um, I was doing what we call the travel social circuit where I go to travel show, to travel show, and, and I give a lecture on kayaking Baja or kayaking Canada, mm-hmm.
0: whatever.
1: And so that's how you got customers before the internet, you know? Yeah. But it didn't cover a wide base of people. It's just, you know, very limited amount of people that ever see that stuff. And so when the internet started up, I, I had the foresight to have someone build me a page. And I think I was one of the first SECOI companies that had an internet page. Wow. And the business just took off with the internet. As the internet took off, so did my business.
0: That's amazing.
1: Yeah. And so you listen just... to
0: your intuition.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I was smart enough to hire somebody good to make a good page. And then I was, and I hired somebody who knew enough, you know, to, to understand how search engines worked, right? Yeah and so you know how you worded it in the photos whatever it's just you know he knew how to design that so right it, the, the, the point is sh- when someone does a search uh you that your company appears on the first page
0: that's so smart
1: says, yeah so yeah
0: i'm taking you know i you know i've now since created my own business and my private practice so but i'm not business savvy by any means uh-huh. so as you're saying this i'm like oh yes i'm taking this in <laughs> And so I want to mention these two things for sure, because these are pretty amazing. But you were voted My Favorite Guide by National Geographic Adventure Magazine in the December 2007, January 2008 issue. Uh huh. And you were also on the cover of National Geographic Adventure Magazine in November 2003.
1: Yeah. Now, when I say on the cover, it's a little bit misleading. I'm on the cover, but it's not like a profile shot of my face, right? Or, or, or I'm—I mean, not profile. I mean, a portrait of my face. It, it's basically I'm one of the kayakers in the in the cover. Yeah, Shop. I, a, found I found it.
0: I found it online. Oh, okay. Yeah, I found oh. it online. It took me a while to to make sure I was getting it correctly, and I uh-huh. eventually found it because there's people on Etsy or not Etsy. There's people on eBay that sell like every issue of National Geographic. Yeah. Oh. And national, uh, National Ge- Geographic Adventure magazine. So, if you want to, I think you can buy it.
1: For oh, okay,
0: <laughs> you know, through these people. Copy,
1: but I'm not sure what happened to it. But anyway, yeah.
0: But yeah, it was a beautiful picture of. I think you were all in silhouette.
1: That's right. Yeah. On the
0: water, and very beautiful picture. Baja. Baja, those
1: are all sand dunes in the backgrounds in the lagoon. This is where the gray whales go to give their cat. The, oh. The the in the winter months
0: okay well that goes into the next story yeah okay that's right yeah so do you want to go into that one
1: about their rescuing the baby calf. yeah oh okay yeah that's very interesting um so so my company had a base camp on a barrier island in in Magdalena bay which is on the west coast of the baja peninsula uh, in the south part of the peninsula, probably everybody knows where Kabul is. This would probably be about five hours north of Kabul, but it's on the west coast. Very remote place, just a fishing village there. And from the fishing village, we take boats out to this very island. You can't drive to the island. And we had a base camp set up there with you know tents and cots and kitchen tent, all the facilities go with that stuff. Yeah. And so we'd bring our guests out there and we'd do whale watching trips. Um, where we get in boats, we go out every day, a couple times a day, and we spend a few hours with the great whales. And also part of that trip involved a hike. And so we hike across the dunes to the Pacific side. Our camp was on the lagoon side, but it was only like a less than a half mile trek to the other side. So we'd hike to the Pacific side, so we can walk along the whole ocean beaches. So I'll never forget that day. We got over there and I I I noticed something dark in the distance. It was unusual. I said, Oh, there's something on the beach way out there. And so we decided to walk towards it. And as we came towards closer to it, I could see it was a whale, something big, like a dolphin, bigger than a dolphin whale. And I said, Oh, that's too bad. There's probably a dead whale. Before we got to it, I said that. And then when we got to it, I changed my mind because it was breathing. And you can see and hear it breathing very loudly. Yeah. And we go, oh my God, they're still alive. And what are we gonna do? And so the first thing I know, this is that the whale was very, very high up on the tide line. So that day, that day was the highest tide of the month, which is very unfortunate. So what that means is your tides don't come to the same level every day. Some days they go higher as the moon becomes full, But once the moon's full and it starts waning, the tides become less. They don't come up as high. And Mm -hmm. I knew that the tide wasn't going to come to that little calf again for another month. And of course, you know, it's not going to survive a few days, not alone another month till the water gets back up that high. Yeah. And so somehow it got stranded. We don't know how it got stranded, but somehow, you know, it must have strayed from its mother and gotten too close into the beach and got stranded somehow. Um, And so... At first, we didn't quite know what to do because you know these calves weigh over a ton. And I was with a group of maybe, there was like a dozen of us, but even with a dozen people, you know, you're not gonna pick up a one ton whale and move it. Um, so uh, as we're wondering what to do, my wife was with me, um, Monica, who's a Mexican citizen. And it just so happens that her uncle was the director of the uh, Marine Park. Um, and so she called her uncle uh, and he told her, he said, well, the first thing you got to do, you have to keep it wet. Mm. And so if you just pour buckets of water on it, the water is going to evaporate off real quickly. So you need to get blankets, get clothing, blankets, anything you can find sleeping bags, whatever, cover the well with it and douse all that water. So it stays wet. Okay. And Then the second thing you have to do, you have to spend the night and guard it because, uh, Because animals would come by at night, you know, coyotes there and and other animals they will come, well, coyotes mainly. And, you know, seabirds and stuff, they'll peck his eyes out or try to eat his tongue, whatever, you know, while it's still alive. So fortunately on that trip, we had a couple of uh, young men who were um, river guides uh, from Idaho. And they were like assistant guides and they agreed to put their tent up and camp by the well all night long, which they did. And they took turns, uh, yeah. an eye on the whale and keeping it doused with water from the ocean. Mm. And meanwhile, we had called up the, the people in the fishing village, and so they agreed to come out the next morning. And they came out. They put a ATV, you know, like a like a quad, I guess you call it, uh, mm-hmm. on a boat somehow. Got that? I guess they used planks. Got that on and off the boat with planks. And then they came up to the whale on the ocean side with a big rope. And they said, well, the only way we're going to do it we're going to tie a rope to the tail and drag it to the ocean. Yeah. And and I said, there's no other way to do it. So that's what we did. So we, um, so they, they, they tied the rope to tail, dragged it to the ocean, got in the water. Then all of us, everybody uh, started pushing the, the little calf back into the water you know because mm. the waves kept pushing it back on shore right like this thing is one ton and and it's about 15 16 feet long and so oh it pushing 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 and finally we got it out and it swam away it was able wow. to swim still, which was amazing you yes know, it's just amazing because something i've learned about whales is they're not designed to be on land they're so heavy they're so big that their body literally crushes their organs when they're on land not immediately oh. but takes time huh. so that's one of the reasons why stranded whales eventually die because the weight of them just crushes their organs
0: oh that's so. so interesting
1: yeah i didn't know that before but i found out since then yeah um so fortunately i don't i think the the calf was only stranded it must have got stranded within hours of us arriving and then, of course, you know, we spent the night on the beach, and then the next morning we got off. I think it was enough time; it was still able to swim and stuff. But it, that's it, it's amazing. Great. And we never saw it wash up, but but there were definitely gray whales offshore, mm. you know, and we were hoping that one of them was the mother.
0: Right, uh, but you know, it's interesting because as you were describing and saying, like a baby gray whale calf, in my mind, I was envisioning like maybe something five feet long, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. but you're saying it was fifteen. 15- at they're minimum. born at
1: 15 feet.
0: They're born at 15 feet. Yeah. Oh they're about gosh.
1: 1500 pounds or about a ton, about 15, 1700 pounds. And they're about 15 feet at birth.
0: Wow. That's
1: yeah.
0: Huge. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and yeah. again, just so wonderful, <laughs> not wonderful for the calf that that the, the calf had to experience that in general, but a gift that you all came across it when you did Yeah, and saved its life.
1: That's right. That's right. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, I hope the most amazing thing is it survived because we're hoping yeah. that it's because you know, uh, uh, whales are, are are very paternal. They really care about their young. You know, right? Not like some animals, where they just have babies and they move on kind of thing. Whales are very very paternal, and so you know, there's been documented cases where whales have mourned the loss of their calves. Oh stuff. yes. And 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 so we're. So it's very likely that the mother mother of that calf was waiting offshore.
0: Yes. Just That's what dead. I was wondering, if even maybe you could see a whale in the distance. Or... There
1: was a bunch of whales in the distance. Not okay. Far so it swam towards those. And you know, we'll That's never great. know because we never saw it wash up on the beach again. We were there for about another three days. But who knows? You know, It could have gone about miles down the beach and washed up. But we never know that.
0: Okay. Well, hopefully it's still living a wonderful life.
1: That's what you want to do. You have to hope.
0: Yeah. Yeah, You have to hope. Well, that's a beautiful story. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I'm really grateful again, just to have this time today to talk with you about all these amazing things. And, and you have, you'd also just spent some time with the Limbad expeditions with National Geographic as an expedition leader in Alaska. How long did you do that for?
1: Oh, just for the summer. Just for the it, summer. Yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. I just I started in late May and I finished in mid August okay. with some breaks in between. They they hired me, they they hire their guides and expedition leaders on what we call a contract basis where you work like three to four weeks in a row, then they give you about two or three weeks off, you go three or four weeks in a row. I like that is how it works and stuff.
0: Yeah. 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 Uh,
1: I took the job mainly as a challenge and also because I thought it'd be fun.
0: Was it fun? And was it a challenge?
1: It was definitely a challenge and it was definitely fun. Um, yeah. And it was definitely a lot involved. It wasn't just making sure your guests had fun activities to do. It was also making sure that the captain and crew were on the program with what you want to do because they are in charge of the ship, you know, and and also we have what's called the hotel department and the hotel department. That's your housekeeping and your, and your galley, your meals. So I had to plan with them. I say, okay, we're going to do this, this one activity, but we're not going to be back till a little later. Can you serve dinner like a half hour later? Or can you do breakfast a brunch instead of breakfast? So I had to work with a lot of different, with a couple other departments all the time. Besides my own staff, I had 10 to 11 naturalist staff. I had this. Oh, my gosh. I was a supervisor of them. So that's what the expedition leader does. It's in charge of all the expedition. I mean, the captain's in charge of the ship and the hotel manager's in charge of housekeeping and the meals and everything. Mm -hmm. I'm in charge of all the activities and the naturalists.
0: Yeah.
1: I say I I have the fun job because I get to decide where we're going to go and what we're going to do, you know, whether it's going to see brown bears fishing at falls for salmon or if it's going to mm-hmm. be a place we can see sea otters and go kayaking with them or a place we can see humpback whales bubble net feeding you know and, and tidewater glaciers it was incredible to be able to take these zodiacs right up to well, close to these tidewater glaciers yeah. and see yeah. stuff like that so it's very exciting yes up at all the all my last week on there the northern lights came out 11:30 in the morning
0: i saw your pictures I yeah. saw your pictures on Instagram. Those were so beautiful.
1: Oh, I haven't seen northern white Sacks like that since the 80s, since I was last up in Alaska the whole summer. Where, I mean, know,
0: it looks fake, you know. No, it, it does, doesn't in it? In a picture, it looks fake. Yeah. It's like, this can't be real. <laughs> Those colors cannot it be just constantly. there.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's waving and changing constantly, you know. Mm. So you, you stay there and you just watch it. and It's sort of like watching a, a show, you know. Yeah. Uh, things just changing.
0: Keeping it's beautiful. Your- so beautiful. And so n- lately, you said that you've been enjoying climbing, what'd you say, 5,000 meter high volcanoes in Mexico and Colombia?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for something uh, challenging and fun, I decided to take up mountain climbing again because <laughs> I was doing mountain climbing, like we talked about earlier. That was in the 80s. And then I put it aside for decades so I can run this sea kayaking business and become a sea kayak guy. Yeah. And then I decided, well, you know, I'm retired now. I'd like to take it up again. And, and one of the reasons I decided that because I have a friend who's my age uh, who's been doing that, you know, and he's 68 as well. And he's climbing all these volcanoes. And I said, and he, he said to me, we should do some of this together. So I said, well, I'm in Mexico and I know that there's a lot of big volcanoes in near Mexico City, let's climb those. And so last, uh, last December, we booked a trip with the guide service in Mexico City, and they took us to three volcanoes in one week.
0: Oh my and gosh!
1: Incredible! I didn't make it to the top of all of them. I only made the top of two. Are
0: but, they active?
1: Uh, uh, no, no, no. They're dormant. There's an active volcano near Mexico City. Has been on the news, but you, that, that no one's allowed to climb that for
0: yeah, okay,
1: obvious reasons.
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, I I I flew into Mexico City. A number of years ago, and in the airplane, I looked out the window at one point, and I was like, Is that a volcano? and it was smoking. It was beautiful,
1: yeah, it's been smoking a lot, it's been erupting a lot lately, I mean small eruptions and mm-hmm. stuff. yeah no that that that's been uh off limits to climbers for a long time now,
0: yeah, makes sense, so yeah, but- yeah climbing volcanoes,
1: yeah. So, yeah, I took it up again, but, but, you know, because of my age, I have to train a lot. So I spent most of last year training, like I, like I took up running again, you know, I, have been doing yoga for a few years now. I do yoga religiously every day now. That's great. And then, then, so I took up like exercising, weightlifting and stuff like that, just to stay in shape and get in shape for that. And so I did that. And then we did the climbs and it was incredible. Boy, man, it was hard. Part of it was altitude. Just, you know, you get like a certain elevation and just you're out of breath.
0: Oh, yeah. I bet.
1: Just a lack of oxygen, right? Absolutely.
0: So, yeah. Generally. So, like you said, one of your lessons that you've learned in your life is being prepared and, yeah, that's right. And knowing also when maybe to stop in yeah. terms of saying, like, okay, maybe I've reached my limit today. I yeah. Maybe like go back down. Was,
1: yeah. Like the volcano I didn't make it on top of was the highest. In Mexico, called Pico Orizaba, it's eight. It's over eighteen thousand feet elevation, Oof. and I probably made it up to fifteen thousand feet, and I just ran out of energy. And my friends kept going with the guide, and one guide went back with me. I just said, "I, I can't. I'm not going to make yeah. it." You know, yeah. The problem is, you know, I can force myself to make it, but when I get to top. You have to have energy to get down. Remember what I told you earlier, the most dangerous part's always going down. And people push themselves too hard, they're exhausted, and that's when they fall and, and get hurt.
0: And make mistakes and that's maybe, right. yeah, have a sense of sloppiness. Oh,
1: I, I just said I'm I'm going back. I, I know I'm yeah. not amazing. It's smart. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Knowing your knowing your body and knowing to listen to your body and and respecting yeah. that.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's better yeah. to come back later and do it again or do something a little bit less less high.
0: Right. So before we end, I want to ask you: Do you have any advice for anyone listening right now, me included, who is listening to this and you tell these amazing stories and is feeling parts of them, maybe being like, "Oh, I would love to invite some sense of adventure into my life." Uh-huh. Any advice on how to start that? What could you start oh, well,
1: with? Well, well, it back in the day, I mean, what we would do, we would you know, go to the bookstore and. By by hiking guides right well now it's all online you can find anything you want online nowadays um and also one thing that we did back in the day which people still do is you join clubs and so like in seattle there's a very famous club called the mountaineers and you can join them for a small fee and they have various levels of hikes for beginners all the way to advance and mountain climbing overnight trips all that stuff And, and that's a good way for someone who doesn't have climbing or hiking friends to start out. If you have a group of you who are friends, you like to do this, you can always find out how to do it online, where to go and then work up from there. But I think if you're alone, and you want to learn how to do things, I always recommend going with a, with like a club.
0: Okay, that's a a great, that's a great recommendation.
1: Yeah. Well, particularly in the Seattle area, I, I don't know other parts of the country, how accessible that, that would be. For example, you never
0: know. Right. I mean, I feel like there's, you can find anything on the internet and yeah. <laughs> there's yeah, things cool out percent. there. Yeah. There's some There, like the odds are there is someone else out there nearby you. If you're listening that is interested in this stuff as well. Yeah. And but
1: my biggest advice is always be prepared. Take classes particularly like people getting into sea kayaking, you know, uh, you know, you really need to know what you're doing when you take up sea kayaking. I mean, it's not as these people thinking, go to Costco, you know, and you can buy one of these little sit on top kayaks and go out. Well, that's fine in front of a lake in front of your house, but if you're going to get out in a place where there's tides and currents, you need to know what you're doing. Right. And this stuff like that kind of thing. And the same thing with climbing, I would never advise anybody to go climbing alone this you know always have a friend and take climbing mm. classes there's a lot of places to offer that kind of stuff you know
0: oh yeah absolutely well thank you so much for sharing all of that that's such yeah. great advice and words of wisdom and and you know so if people are interested in the sea kayak adventures because you still you sold the company yeah but you still collaborate with them right yeah, and, and do yeah, stuff with I, them
1: Yeah. I lead a trip or two for a few trips a year. Really. That's all just when they're, when they're short of guide staff and they, they need somebody, I always told them they can give me a call and I'll, I'll fill in. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: And so I'll put that website in the show notes for people that Uh are interested. And I, I would love to do one. I know my husband would love to do one. I know my mom and Carla, they did one.
1: They came on one with me in British Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so we offer tours, kayak tours, paddle with orcas and humpback whales in, in uh, British Columbia during the summer months. And in the winter months, we go down the Baja where you can kayak in the Sea of Cortez. And there you can see the big blue whales
2: mm.
1: and, and, and fin whales, a lot of different whale and dolphin species and snorkel a lot. And then there's the other side, which I talked about already on the Pacific side, where you can go see the gray whales and their calves.
0: That's beautiful. I would love to do that.
1: Yeah. That, that's a fun trip. That'd be a fun trip. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So yeah, I'll put the website in the show notes and your Instagram as well is Pritchard underscore Terry. And I mentioned that because you post some just fun photos of, again, your, yeah. your adventures. Mm-hmm. And like you said, of the Northern Lights, that picture was beautiful. Yeah. That's well, great. this was great. Thank you so much, Terry, for spending this time with me today and sharing just these fun stories of Uh what you've encountered and lessons learned and advice and all of that. I'm really, really grateful.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure to share my passion for the outdoors with